Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. This is CBC Radio. From coast to coast through the CBC Radio Network and around the world on shortwave, this is As It Happens. Good evening, this is As It Happens. As It Happens. This is As It Happens. As It Happens. Hello. This is As It Happens. Hello, I'm Neil Coxall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happened, the December edition. probably familiar with our archive show as it happened in which we unlock the as it happens vaults and go exploring for treasures from our program's long history well we're bringing you a special new as it happened podcast in this feed where we will revisit some of the most surprising and fascinating conversations from the past month and dust off a few gems from our archives and this time we're looking back at the month of december 2023 in this episode we're keeping a very close eye on some especially unusual suspects. Specifically, fugitives who keep looking over their shoulders. Figuratively speaking, since potatoes don't have shoulders. Chris is, of course, referring to our conversation about a secret operation involving a contentious illegal crop. Shh. And we get to hear about the thrilling chase happening in the Antarctic Ocean, where the world's largest iceberg is finally free and making a break for open water. All the secrets will soon be revealed. All that and more coming up for you on the December edition of our As It Happened podcast. Running from the law is hard work. You have to go into hiding, change your appearance and your location, and get a job on a national radio show under an assumed name. It, or, or whatever. That's just an example I, whose real name is Chris Howden, made up. It's very stressful. I assume, to have to exercise constant vigilance and secrecy, which is why at some point fugitives tend to slip up and get caught. But Thomas Randall's on-the-run story is a little different. Before he died of lung cancer in 2021, Mr. Randall lived a quiet suburban life with his wife and daughter in Linfield, Massachusetts, neither of whom knew his secret. Until one night after his first round of chemotherapy, when he was watching NCIS with his daughter, and he came clean. Neil spoke to Mr. Randall's daughter, Ashley, about the moment she learned what her father had done more than 50 years ago and his real name, Ted Conrad. Ashley, I suspect that that moment when you type in Ted Conrad on your computer and then hit search, that's not the kind of moment that you really could ever forget. No, it it honestly felt like something out of a Lifetime movie because who, who suspects that when they look up their parents' birth name that they're going to find headlines that say, you know, vault teller steals money, fugitive still on the run. I mean, crazy and also terrifying. It must have been a complicated mix of emotions because on one hand, the dad, as you know him, is extremely ill and on his deathbed. And then you find out this information and then find out more through your search. So what was that mix of emotions at that time? So, I mean, shocked. I wish there were a bigger word for shocked. 
and incredibly confused because I shared everything with my parents. My parents and I have always been incredibly close. And my dad is not somebody that you ever suspected would keep a secret, let alone a secret this big. So this all dates back to 1969, July of that year. We're talking about more than $200,000 or the equivalent of Mm -hmm. about $1.8 million U.S. today. So, so many things to to digest for you. Uh, And I wonder, after you did that initial search and, and the few things your father had told you and asked you not to keep looking, were you able to get any more information from him in subsequent conversations before he passed? Yes. So... Thankfully, the next day, you know, I spoke to my dad and I told him that I had looked him up and I knew what had happened in July of 69, Mm -hmm. but that that did not change how I felt about him. And it didn't change how I looked at him. And he was still my dad. And I love him. Mm -hmm. And the look of relief on his face. And I said, you know, we have to tell mom. I ended up telling my mom on my own because he just couldn't bring himself to tell her. He was just so afraid of hurting her. Um, My mom was equally, if not more, shocked than I was because I essentially said, I I know dad's name, but I can't even tell you. We're just going to have to look it up together and you're going to need to read about it like I did because I can't even say it because it's too insane. And then the three of us were able to have some really difficult but good conversations over the next few weeks. The biggest thing that we just impressed upon my dad immediately was, you know, we love you. You know, my mom to say, like, you're my husband, and I love you, and you're the best husband. And it's, you know, not to say it's okay and not to say it's, it's fine to, you know, commit a crime, but that in the grand scheme of things, this is not what we're harping on in the last weeks of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things we need to talk about. We do need answers. And one of the reasons, honestly, that I launched this podcast was to find out answers about who my dad was before he had me and really why he did what he did. One of the remarkable things, many remarkable things, though, you would imagine someone with such a big secret for so long, you know, might be might be nervous or, you know, as you replay, as I'm sure you have moments in your life. um, Did you ever see signs of that kind of nervousness? And and things that now you look back on and go, maybe that was a sign that we missed? My dad was never nervous. He was just the most relaxed, calm person I ever knew. Personally, I am a very anxious person. (laughs) So his calmness was always just like a breath of fresh air for me. So he never seemed nervous. He was never someone who seemed like they were looking over their shoulder There were none of those signs. But looking back to your point of maybe with hindsight, what do I notice? When I was in high school, I went on a trip to France through school, like through the French class I was in. And parents could be chaperones. And so my mom said, yes, I'll be a chaperone. When else am I going to get to go to France? Tommy, let's go. You can be a chaperone too. And his response was, nah, I don't want to go to France. You girls go have fun. I'll stay home with the cat. And at the <laughs> time, I remember thinking, weird choice, Tom, but okay. But now I look back and think he could not have gone to France because you need a, 
a passport to travel internationally. Mm. And my dad never had a passport because he never had like a fake birth certificate. Right. He'd just taken on this name. Yeah. So he had a social security card and he had a real Mm. social security card. Mm -hmm. Like in 1970, when he got to Boston, he went into the local registrar's office and just got, it's a real social security card. It's not Mm. forged. That was Neil talking to Ashley Randall, co-host of the podcast Smokescreen, My Fugitive Dad. Thomas Randall was able to avoid authorities for more than 50 years, mainly by keeping a low profile. That is not possible for A23A, because A23A is the world's largest iceberg. And if you're picturing a big iceberg, picture a bigger one. A23A is more than three times the size of New York City. Recently, that enormous iceberg finally broke from its long confinement and made a break for the open ocean. Andrew Myers is part of the team aboard a British polar research ship in hot pursuit of A23A. Neil spoke to Mr. Myers in December during his chase in the middle of the Antarctic Ocean. Andrew, I'm sure you encounter a a lot of stunning uh, views in in your work, but what does it feel like to, to... to see this, to to see the biggest iceberg in the world. Yeah, it, it's quite amazing. Um, it, it's hard to grasp the scale of it because really it just it fills one half of your entire world when you're on a ship. Yeah. Uh, normally you're sitting in the middle of the ocean with the horizon all around, but when you're up against um, A23A, the, the berg, as we've been calling it, uh, it, it's just a wall. It's like a, a white wall that stretches from as far as you can see in one direction to as far as you can see in the other. It's uh, quite amazing. And how much ice are are we talking about? We've described in the introduction that it's, you know, many times the size of Manhattan. I've read some other comparisons as well. It's big, certainly. How much ice are we talking about? It's it's really big. Um, So if you're just looking at from above, it's about 4,000 square kilometers. Um, That's about twice the area of Greater London. Uh, In terms of actual amounts of ice, I'd have to run the calculations. It's a bit hard in my head, but you know, you're talking trillions of tons of ice. Colossal. So if it's it's moving towards the open ocean, what are your concerns? Yeah. So I think it's important to underscore this is a perfectly natural process. Mm -hmm. Bits of ice shelves fall off and float away uh, all the time. It's what they do. They're basically big lumps of ice sliding down the Antarctic continent into the ocean and eventually coming away. This is a particularly big piece. Um, so the risks it does pose um, is if it parks itself in front of uh, areas with things like penguin or seal colonies, uh, particularly some of the sub-Antarctic islands like South Georgia or the uh, South Orkneys, um, that then both denies the local local area where the, where the creatures may be feeding, particularly in shallow water, which tend to be more productive, but also means if they want to get to the open ocean, they have to go around this colossal iceberg where, where there's no food. So that can be really devastating to uh, colonies, particularly in the breeding season, which it's coming up to. So soon we expect to see lots of pups and uh, penguins hatching. Um, and so if this was to park in front of those, the adult would really have a hard time feeding both themselves and their chicks. So you could see colony devastation potentially. Where do you think it will end up? It, well, it's hard to it's hard to say with certainty. So, Iceberg Alley uh, is is where these icebergs tend to shoot off, but it's quite broad, particularly as you get further away, because we're sort of sitting in the, in the start of several branching currents. Um, but it, it will head over time to the to the northeast and move out into the Antarctic Circumpolar Current proper. So, this is the really big, the biggest current in the world. It goes right around Antarctica. Um, so, I think it will 
probably follow similar trajectories to large bergs that have happened in the recent past and we'll head towards South Georgia. Whether or not it will get there, uh, it's really hard to say. It's very hard to know whether these, how stable they are, how rapidly they'll break up. It, it could go as far as, as, as approaching South Africa even. You talked about how colossal it is, as you put it, and awe-inspiring, I'm sure, to see <laughs> it. But given what we know about climate change and the threat to Antarctica, what is it like from that vantage point? I mean, this... Uh, it, it's, it's so a bit like wildfires in the sense that it's very hard to ascribe any given wildfire down to climate change, but we know that the frequency is definitely going up. And so the frequency with which these bergs and, in fact, many ice shelves around Antarctica are retreating, uh, and we can we can label that quite strongly as attributed to climate change. So it is quite somber seeing this. I mean, it's it's a natural phenomenon, but we know it's accelerating, and seeing that much ice just really puts uh, uh, puts it in perspective uh, how we expect the sea level to change in the future and how this will have feedbacks onto the onto the wider global climate. It's um, quite sombering. Andrew Myers is the chief scientist aboard the British polar research ship, the RRS Sir David Attenborough. You're listening to As It Happened, the December edition, a monthly podcast where we look and listen back at the month that was. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. If you've ever been to a thrift store, you know the feeling. You're browsing through the bric-a-brac and knickknacks when you spot something special. So special that you look around in disbelief to make sure no one else has already spotted what you've found. Then you hightail it to the register to cash out and take your treasure home before it winds up at the center of a frenzied bidding war. Usually that is not a rational response. No one else wants that chipped Royal Dalton figurine as much as you do. But a scenario like that could easily have unfolded at the Portland Rescue Mission if it hadn't been for the keen-eyed staff. In December, Neil spoke with Aaron Holcomb, Director of Staff Ministry at the Mission, about finding an extremely rare and valuable pair of sneakers in the donation bin. Aaron, tell our listeners, let them in on the secret. What did one of your volunteers find in, a, in one of the donation bins? We have had such an amazing story unfold over these last few weeks. So uh, recently, a man who had been part of our program, he had been living on the streets and gotten into our program. And as he was going through our bin of clothing and shoes, he saw a very bright gold pair of Nikes. And when he saw those, he pulled them and set them aside because he thought that they looked like something staff should probably see just before we handed them out on the street. And the inside of them is bright red, like red carpet red is the way I've heard it described. And they were in perfect shape. There was not a mark on them, no sign of wear. The laces were still folded in. And so he gave them to our shelter staff, who then gave them to me to say, hey, what do we do with these really nice-looking shoes? Maybe they're worth something. (laughs) How long did it take you to figure out what they were all about? I could quickly tell just from Googling that they looked just like these Spike Lee shoes that he wore to the Oscars. But I thought, of course they're not those shoes. Why would they be in our donation bin? Because... 
that would never be the case. And so I thought, these are just really excellent replicas that someone made. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and what are our replicas even worth anything? You know, I, we didn't know what to do with them. So I held on to them for several weeks. And then I reached out to a friend of mine who is a sneakerhead. And I said, hey, I have these shoes. I'm sure they're fakes, but what do I do just to make sure? And yeah. he referred me to a high-end sneaker resale shop in Portland. The people at the sneaker shop took them into the back room. So I didn't see their initial reaction. But when they came out, they were holding them very carefully, and they said, these are the real thing. They're very rare, very unique to see. They said, we've never seen these, and thank you so much for bringing them in. They said, please take care of them. These are really valuable. And then they offered $10,000 in that moment. So, <laughs> uh, you know, at that point, that's where I thought, okay, there's something. I mean, these are obviously not fakes. Well, to be so, clear, were these the ones that I remember when Spike Lee won his Oscar, finally, and it's great purple yes. suit and he yes. was ecstatic and I remember the sneakers are these the ones he wore on stage these are not his personal shoes okay. but there was a a group of about five shoes they said four or five that were manufactured for him and his his friends so he was able to request this small lot to be manufactured so these are not his personal shoes but mm -hmm. someone in his close circle had passed them along and, you know, they told you at the store to take good care of them. But in in those weeks before you got around to it, yeah. where were you keeping them? So they were in my office for a long time. But then when I needed to get them to the sneaker store, I had them in the back of my minivan for a mm -hmm. long time. And then they were in the clean clothes laundry basket in my bedroom. And then, of course, as soon as I found out what they were worth, they went immediately into a safe place where nothing was going to get spilled on them and they wouldn't get damaged <laughs> at all. And thankfully, they've just made it through without a scrape. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. I'm glad it yeah. was in the clean clothes uh, basket. Yeah. <laughs> so you got the verification from, from the sneaker experts at the store, but then there was another layer of, of verification. Nike's shoe designer, Tinker Hatfield, yes. came to visit, yes? Yeah. Yeah, we reached out to Tinker Hatfield because he's local here in Portland, and I was not sure if we would hear back at all because it was just a shot in the dark. The reason I reached out to him is because in these particular shoes, his name is embroidered besides Spike Lee's. So, and, and if you know about sneakers, which I've been learning, he's an, an incredibly important person in the Nike Air Jordan world. So we just threw it out there. He called me back while he was on vacation to say that he would love to be a part of it. So he said, not only... Would I love to, you know, be part of this? He said, I will, uh, I will bring a design concept board, which has not been published. It was what he and Spike Lee used, sending back and forth. Oh, wow. And I, we were, he was also able to get us a replacement box for the Air Jordans because oh. they came down the chute without a box. And then Just he signed the that shoot. box. Oh. So exactly. this is all so, to help even increase the, the value and, and the exactly. sale price you might get. Exactly. And and as I learned, having a box for your sneakers is really important. But having a box yes. that Tinker Hatfield signed is really <laughs> unique. So that was really exciting that he was able to provide those things for us. Erin Holcomb is the Director of Staff Ministry at the Portland Rescue Mission. She spoke with Neil in December about discovering a rare pair of gold Air Jordans commissioned by Spike Lee in the charity's donation bin. When an item is that rare, it's hard not to feel like your find is more theft than thrift, like you're holding a quantity of dangerous contraband. And Rob Dieter knows that feeling. Although, compared to Gold Air Jordans, his contraband is small potatoes and big potatoes. I assume his potatoes come in all sizes, but they are illegal. Mr. Dieter grows caribou potatoes, which Canadians are not allowed to grow for commercial use. 
But as he told guest host Helen Mann in December, that hasn't stopped him from cultivating the outlawed breed of tuber at the Horse Lake Community Farm Co-op in Horse Lake, B.C. Rob, I understand that caribou potato is pretty distinctive looking. Describe it for us. The caribou potato is a really a very attractive. Um, it has a, a slightly yellowish smooth flesh, and it has pink around the eyes. The eyes are very shallow, pretty distinctive all right. How big are they? Um, well, they can get quite large. I would say most uh, are kind of a, like a medium-sized um, russet potato, the ones that you would you might use for baking. Right. So is this like a russet potato, a, a floury one, or more of a waxy potato? Uh, it's kind of a, a sm- very smooth, uh, creamy flesh. Um, you know, when they're cooked, they are that way, very creamy, and um, they're very delectable. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada decertified the caribou potato in 1976. Why isn't the caribou considered suitable for commercial growth? Well, it was a, a very good uh, potato, and it seemed to pass all the tests when the Ag Canada had some local folks um, experiment and grow the potatoes out, and they did very well. Um, however, the weak point with a potato, at least for the commercial growers, was the fact that the tubers themselves clung to the vine. So as they went through the harvesting machines, they tended to, to get things jammed up. Um, and uh, the, it, it wasn't a, a characteristic that was uh, really appreciated by the commercial growers. So, uh, yeah, in 1976, Ag Canada decertified the potato. And by delisting, that means what? I mean, could, could I grow one in my backyard, or it's, it's a question I can't produce it commercially? Well, uh, it can't be produced commercially, and it can't be produced and, and sold as seed. As far as the backyard gardeners are concerned, well, um, <laughs> it's hard to say. I don't think Ag Canada has gone after anybody for, for growing it to, in their backyards. Do you but, sell yours? Uh, well, no, we don't. We, we, we actually, we give them away. We, we sell, we, I grow about a half an acre of potatoes on Horse Lake. And uh, we just, we have a, always have two or three rows of the caribou potatoes. And most of them we save for seed that we give out. And then, of course, we, you know, we need our own seed. And uh, just recently we've had a flood of emails from across Canada from people um, wishing to try the caribou potato. Now, you've been threatened uh, with a $10,000 fine at your co-op for growing these. So why do you keep doing it? Oh, well, the threat that was made was uh, years ago when this whole thing first uh, blew up, and that was in 1983-1984. And we had a letter from the Ministry of Agriculture in B.C., and it ended, ended by saying, I suggest that you select and grow varieties that can be legally grown in Canada. Well, that was just enough to set us off, and uh, because, you know, we always believed that the state has no place in the backyard gardens of the nation. So was that what gave you the impetus to to take this on, kind of those fighting words? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, we did a certain amount of, uh, you could say, mud raking in those days. And uh, so this was just the perfect issue to uh, 
get get going. Have uh, have they have anybody come after you try to collect this fine? Uh no. No no they never they never have. Rob Dieter is a potato specialist at the Horse Lake Community Farm Co-op. He spoke to guest host Helen Mann in December about growing illegal potatoes. An illegal potato growing farm sounds like the type of place ham might hide out for a couple of days. You might remember ham, an internet and as it happens famous duck, who was frequently on the run, uh, or at least the fast waddle, despite his owner's attempts to fence him in at his garden home in Chorley, Lancashire, England. Last January, Neil spoke with Ham's owner, Charlotte Taylor Dugdale, about her mischievous feathered friend and why he is always on the run. Charlotte, where's Ham now? What's he up to? He's um, he's actually in his pen. He's had a really long journey. We've been to London, which is quite far away for us. Um, So he's in his pen with his Rice Krispies sleeping. There's a lot to dig into there. First of all, the Rice Krispies... (laughs) He absolutely loves them, honestly. It's his favourite treat. And there's nothing wrong with a treat every now and then, is there? Well, no, I definitely subscribe to that uh, to that philosophy. The fact that he's, you know, in his pen, just just hunkered down, is pretty rare for him, though. Uh, he, he does like to wander. So how does he keep getting out? See, this is the thing. The, the pen is pretty secure. So if you've, I don't know if you've heard of Houdini over in Canada. Of course, uh, but he's, of course. Um, a very... Oh, well, there we go, yeah. Um, well, we call him Hamdini because we keep... How he gets out, we will never know, but he just manages. And in the morning, like, we'll go to feed dog. Oh, the duck's missing. So I shout out my bedroom window. I go, Ham! And I hear him calling back from near my house in, in the woods or on the square or in someone else's garden going, Ham! He answers back. So I'm like, oh, God, so we better go and get him. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the fact that he answers back means he's not really trying to escape because that was my first question. I was like, maybe this duck just just wants to live free. But if he's answering back, you know, he, he knows where home is and he knows who you are. So where is he going? Oh, he does, yeah. he's um. Well, first of all, so um, it started, we had Pete and Ham obviously like the soup, and P passed away December 2021. Yeah, Yeah, and um, he started escaping after that. Before that, he never did. He stayed with P and she couldn't get over fences or anything. Um, And we think he was looking for P originally, and then he started to get the attention of the locals. He he made friends with children and things, and, and, and I think from there he just quite enjoys being social rather than being locked up and obviously spend a lot of time with us. But sometimes you like to see your friends as well as your family, don't you? So yes. I think that that's what he's doing. He enjoys being social now. Do you have to go uh, fetch him or does he come back on his own? Um, sometimes he comes back on his own. Now, how he's got famous is he knows where he lives and he knows who we are. And I was shouting out the window and I always hear him, but I couldn't hear him. So I thought, well, this is a bit strange. So um, we went looking for him, couldn't find him, couldn't hear him anywhere. No one had seen him, put a post out on Facebook. I thought he's been taken because there's no way that he wouldn't, one, come back because he knows where he lives, or two, shout back to us when we call. Um, So we knew someone had taken him. And um, there was a big play on Facebook, plenty of shares. It got a lot of attention. But um, somebody who works in the hospital said, oh, my friend said she's found a duck and um, her son's put him in the shed and they've got a pet now. Um, This was five hours later. She said said to this woman, I think that your duck you've got is this duck that's on Facebook missing. Turns out he was. So luckily we got him back. He'd been in someone's shed. (laughs) Just went to the wrong, went back to the wrong house. What's the strangest place he's ever, he's ever traveled to or broken into? Um, um, so we have a nursery, a chemist, and a pub near where we live. And 
he goes in people's houses all the time. That's that's normal for him. They open the door and he's there. He's going in. But um, he's tried to get into the nursery because he loves the children. He's tried to get in the chemist when people have gone in for prescriptions. And he's tried <laughs> to get in the pub for a nice cold pint, I think. I mean, he's a Brit, right? He's, a... <laughs> he's naughty. <laughs> <laughs> he's naughty. Yeah. And I, I think you mentioned this already, but just, just in case our, our listeners missed it, why did you name them P and Ham? Oh, no, this is a funny story. Again, so um, I wanted to call them dog and cat. And I was at my mum's the day when, obviously, I got them and I was sat with her and she was like, let's have a chat. And I said, so we're going to call them. I said, I think dog and cat. And she was like, oh, well, that's not bad anyway. She said, what are you having for tea? And I said, pea and ham soup. <gasps> we were like, well, this is perfect. Pea and ham, the irony. Charlotte Taylor Dugdale is the owner of Ham the Duck. We reached her in Chorley, Lancashire, England. That brings us to the end of this special As It Happened podcast. The show was produced by John McGill, Devin Nguyen, our technician, Reynold Gonzalez, and help from us, Austin Webb and Zian Iras. You can hear another special As It Happened episode in this podcast feed at the end of next month. I'm Chris Howden. And of course, you can always catch our regular show on CBC Radio 1, the CBC Listen app, or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Nee Cooksall. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.